To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Uh, I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So this week I have back on Dan Picard. Um, it's been a while since I've had Dan on the podcast, but he's just a great guest and, and a great human being. I really like the guy, um, and I can really relate to him. Um, you know, he's he he's bow exclusive, and he, he's always working on his craft. He's just a great shot, great under pressure. He's driven, in good shape. He's got all the necessary attributes to be consistently successful, and then he constantly imp- applies himself and works hard at it. So, um, he's just the, the perfect guest. I always draw information from our conversations, um, you know, the similarities and also the differences. And, and these are the conversations that make me a better bow hunter. And so these are the the episodes that I'm I'm so excited to put out to you guys. It, it's just littered with with great intel on on hunting public ground and and what it takes to be successful. So uh, today is a special treat. Like I say, Dan is a great guest. I really enjoyed the conversation and I know you guys will enjoy today's episode sponsor for today's show is Sitka gear um sick is just building the best technical hunting clothing out there um I, i'm so impressed with their camo patterns how you know if you freeze in wide open terrain those animals just don't see you. i love that new subalpine pattern that open country pattern is just as good um they and they just they build all the the the, the technical gear that you need to do these extreme hunts and they keep you more comfortable out there. So they've got hot weather gear, uh, mid season gear, cold weather gear, great layering. Um, you know, they, they've really got into the, the hoodies lately, which I love cause I love hooded gear to regulate my temperature and, and to keep the sun off me. And, and, uh, I, I am just, um, I am in love with sick clothing. Uh, I, I use it for practically everything I do outside and it's just the, the absolute best gear made. And they, they keep evolving their gear. Their, their fit is so, it fits me so well and everybody I know so well. Um, I, I really like their fit. I like their, their fabrics. They're using their technical fabrics that they've just kept evolving over the years. And then, and then their features, you know, the, the different, uh, zippers, you know, like I've got, uh, my jacket, this jet stream jacket, it's got pit zips on it. And so you can zip open the armpit when it's, when it's raining and you can cool yourself down that way and regulate your temperature if you're hiking and when it's cold. And, and like this year I did this, this, um, late season hunt, you know, I've been hunting this late season where it's been zero degrees or colder and with the wind chill 20 to 30 below. And I've been able to be comfortable and, and, be out all day long hunting and chasing these rutting mule deer, you know, just with my sick of clothing. And I know my buddy Dan, like he was freezing the other day, like the, you know, it's been now a couple weeks since we went on that hunt, but it was cold and I know he was freezing. And so, um, he went home. First thing he did is he started ordering some of the like the puffy pants and um, ordered a new puffball jacket and uh, ordered a bunch of stuff from Sitka that I know he's super psyched with. But they're just a, a great company and I couldn't be prouder to to represent them here on the podcast. So thanks to those guys. Um, if you guys are looking for any new gear for the next year, make sure you check out Sitka. And with that, um, yeah, Eastman's. Um, Gosh, we're getting ready. Uh, I'm going to go to a couple shows this year. I'm really excited about that. Going to go to the ATA 
And uh, I think I'm going to go to the, what's that, the, the Western Expo there in Salt Lake. So I think I'm going to go to those couple shows, going to try to get some really good guests on and, and record some good episodes. Um, I just got some great episodes coming up I'm super excited about, this being one of them. I'm really excited to release this to you guys. It's it's just a great conversation on public land hunting the West. Um, just so much great information in it. So i um, excited to release this one. I'm just excited where the where the podcast is headed. I just... You know, I, I always talk about you know, working hard at it, but it, it's just constantly thinking about it and coming up with new ideas, taking notes before I get a guest on, uh, and really trying to get the most out of the conversations, too, and the, the most out of the guests. I want the, the guests, when they come on this podcast, I, I want them – you know. I, I want them to be their very best, and and through that is is with the the questions that I ask and answer. And I know early in the podcast, you know, I, I maybe talk too much. I mean, I like having a conversation on the podcast, um, but I I definitely got to give the those guests a, a platform to speak and then ask the right questions to get the right information out of them. So you know, just always improving my game, and and then I'm so focused on on bow hunting and being the the very best I can be and improving my shooting and and fitness and 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 research and planning good hunts. I am just so driven for this upcoming year. And and when I'm driven, I think it comes through on the, on the podcast. So anyways, I I better get right into this. Um so this is uh, Dan Picard and I Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Oh, good to go. Man, you've had a busy hunting season. Yeah, it's been really busy. It's finally starting to slow down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, every time I try to catch up with you, it's like uh, you're at the office for a day or two, and then you're off again on some other hunt. It looks like you've been hunting a lot for yourself, but also um, with other people and filming and all your other obligations, huh? Yeah, yeah. A lot of couple a couple friends drew some tags this year. My dad drew a brakes elk tag, and um, yeah, it's been a roller coaster like always. I think I did like twelve or thirteen hunts this year, including my own. So, um, yeah. Super busy. Was that that giant bull you killed? Um, was that your dad that killed that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, good for him. What a stud of a bull. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty insane. Oh, I mean, that's a great tag to have, but um, it, it's too, like, it isn't easy. You don't just show up on a good tag and harvest the biggest animal there. Like, you got to go out and hunt for it. And those animals, like, even in that country, they're so high pressure and been hunted so hard, they get tucked away in little holes in that stuff and can be tough to find, I would imagine. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. And I think a lot of guys get distracted on, you know, 300-inch bulls, and they shoot those, and those are great bulls. But to find, you know, a giant, you got to pass up some smaller bulls. And that's exactly what we did is we hunted for three or four days there and uh, just saw smaller bulls. And we kept working this drainage that had a big timbered north face. And, you know, finally, like 10 days into the season, the Muy Grande showed up and just hiding in that dark timber north face, caught him out in a pocket, and got him killed. Oh, dude, just so. amazing. Yeah, well, I like to just roll these podcasts nowadays um, just from the start, just because I have such good, authentic conversations the 10 yep. minutes leading up to when I press record. So um, so we're recording now and going for it. But, man, what an awesome bull. Um, that thing was truly next level. Um, those those things, they um, you talk about hiding in a north-face slope. 
like like after the rut, those bulls just put away in, in the best hidey spots they can find or hidey holes they can find. And I found even in that open country like that, that a lot of their traveling and a lot of their feeding is done in open timber or bottoms where you can't glass them very well. But they just have a knack for finding that country. But truly a next level bull, man. That thing was awesome. He had to be awesome just to hold them. Yeah, yeah, he's one of those bulls that you know you maybe see once every ten years, and if you're lucky enough to kill him, that's you know a even a bonus really. But um, yeah, it it's it's tough. We walked uh, four miles in every morning for five mornings, uh, so an hour before dark, hoofing it in there and just on a massive vantage point. And like you said, the bulls, you know, after a week of hard rifle pressure they move around a bit and they end up on these north faces and we're just looking over a massive amount of country and caught them on the edge of of the timber and at at first light i glassed up a little raghorn he was with the little raghorn and i didn't see the big bull initially he was actually bedded in the timber already and so it just goes to show you how how smart those old bulls are but that little raghorn is what gave him away uh, those little bulls and little bucks, sometimes they just give away those spots where the big <laughs> ones are hiding. So you spotted the little one and then started dissecting it a little bit further and then spotted him bedded in the timber. Is that how it went down? Yeah, I saw that little raghorn first thing. He was down in the bottom, and I was like, oh, he's just a little squeaker. And so I moved down the ridge, and I looked down another drainage, and I, I saw some more bulls and some cows and uh, just nothing worth looking at too close. And I'm like, oh, I want to check on that little raghorn again. And and so I looked back in there at, at a different angle. And before I even put up the binos, I could see a body in the scattered ponderosa pine in there. And I could see a body. And then I threw up the binos. And I was like, holy smokes. Like I could tell he was 1,100 yards away. But I could tell like his frame was mega. And so I was like, holy smokes. So I'm shaking. I'm getting out the the tripod and spotter and I get the spotter on him and I can just see him turn his head and you see his time length and you're like, you know, next level. So didn't, didn't expect anything that big. We actually went in there that fifth day, uh, just ready to shoot a solid bull. My dad's never killed a bull elk in his life for crying out loud. So I was like, ah, if we can get him a solid bull, you know, with a 320 or something, that'd be fantastic. And so our standards really weren't that high. And I don't know, like you, when you least expect it, the super monster steps out and <laughs> it's either kill him or or not. So we, yeah, I mean, it gets better and better. I'll keep going if you want me to, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad was down the ridge and I'm texting him. I'm like, get over here quick. And he's like, okay, I'm coming. And, I mean, he's 61 years old, and he's got asthma. He's not in the best shape. And so I'm sitting there watching this giant for, oh, probably 15 minutes. And this coyote starts howling down below us in the in the creek. And and he didn't really care. He's looking around. And so I'm like, dude, this thing is giant. We, he, My dad's shooting a 7 mag. I mean, let's get within 400 yards and, and shoot this thing. And so – he finally, you know, shows up and I didn't really want to even say how big he was. I thought he was 350 to 360, but it's kind of another story to that when we walk up on him later, I'll tell you about. But we uh, we just make a, a run for it, basically. It was a perfect approach, plenty of timber, and we had some terrain to work with. And it's all, I mean, you know how the brakes are. It's all gumbo. It's some of that soft dirt, and so it's easy sneaking. And so we're slipping down through the timber, and I'm going, I'm looking, and we get down to the edge of the timber, 
and both bulls are alert and they're looking in the creek and the bull, the big one is on his feet and he's on the edge of the really dark timber, like gone forever, dark timber. And so I'm like, crap, we must've pushed that coyote into him or, or a mule deer or something, but we never saw anything, but they were alert. And so we're 650 yards away and this bull, this giant's about ready to step in the timber. And he does, he stepped in the timber and, and I'm looking at the North face and I see two little lanes in front of him, probably like 40, 50 yards in front of him that we may have a chance at him in. And so we hauled butt down the hill and, and wrapped around and got on this little bench and we cut off another 150 yards. So we're 500 yards from these things. And I guess the backstory a little bit, my dad is, you know, he taught me how to shoot and the importance of a good rest and shooting prone. And, and he practices and he knows the trajectory of his rifle. He's not a turret guy at all. Uh, I mean, he shoots milk jugs out to 450 yards and, and he learns the trajectory of his bullet. And so we talked about him like 500 yards, you know, where are we going to hold? This is Kentucky windage. It's straight Kentucky windage, but he knew his drop. I mean, you know how thick an elk chest is. And so we, we, he kind of winged it a little bit, but as soon as we get to 500 yards, this bull is standing broadside in the lane and I'm ranging him for him. I'm getting the camera set up and everything. And he, and just before dad is like feeling solid and ready to shoot, the bull steps into the dark timber. And I was like, crap, well, there's another little lane in front of him. So I'm just kind of communicating with dad and making sure he's got his bearings and, and he knows what he's looking at. And instead of going forward, this bull kind of loops up around and comes back and he's back into the same lane. And he's got some, some junipers in front of him. And this bull is like, perfectly broadside maybe slightly quartering away 510 yards and i i mean i still don't know how he did it but he's rock solid i, I was communicating with him and he held the crosshairs basically eh, halfway between his ears and his back Kentucky windage, if that makes sense, like over him. You know yeah, what I mean? like trying to get 36 inches above exactly. the spot you want to hit or whatever. It, yeah. Exactly. We discussed 38 inches of drop at that range, and, and that's what we talked about, and that's what he shot for. And so literally, this bull turns his head. It's it's the last lane. He's at the top of the hill, and Dad sends it. <laughs> Shoots, and you can see the, the bullet just arc out there. And there was some junipers kind of over his belly and up towards the front of his chest. But he just dropped that bullet right in over the junipers, right into the shoulder of that bull. It was it was the I mean, I've, I've guided a lot of hunters, been on a lot of hunts. I've seen some really incredible shots by guys with rifles. But the shot was legendary. Legendary. I don't know if I could have done that, you know, like heat of the moment, Boone and Crockett bull in your crosshairs. First elk ever. And you frickin' slam dunk. Unbelievable. Oh, what a shot. Yeah. yeah. Like you say, you've seen a lot of good shots made. I'm sure you've seen a lot of bad shots, too. Like, it's not a given with a rifle. Even practicing with them in the moment with that adrenaline to make that kind of shot, that's amazing. Good for yeah. him. Yeah, nerves of steel. And once again, conditions were perfect. There was no wind. It was first thing in the morning and, and broadside and everything and a nice prone rock solid rest. But, I mean... I give it him that he, he may not be an elk hunter, but he's a shooter and, and he knows what it takes to to put it where it needs to be. And man, he did it right in front of my eyes. I almost start crying. <laughs>
<laughs> oh man, I think I would have. Yeah, that's amazing, yeah. man. Yeah, those those old codgers, man, they can shoot. My grandpa was in the military. I don't think I've ever seen him miss a deer. Like he's just good in the crunch, you know. Um, you you give him a shot and he's gonna knock it down. I remember being a kid and watching him make three four hundred yard shots in in Western Washington, you know, in logged off country, but shots that you just don't practice for. But uh, yeah, Grandpa doesn't miss. He's on the mark. Sounds like your dad's <laughs> on the mark. Knows his gun really well. Like the, there's so much. Um, that goes into being a good shot and practicing on those milk jugs, like shooting targets yep. at 450 yards. Like he was comfortable. He knew where he had to aim and then uh, made it all come together and executed, which is just amazing under that uh, intense amount of pressure, but good for you guys. What a yep. ball. Yep. Yep. Definitely pretty exciting. I mean, it's Brian, it's gotta be the highlight of my hunting career to experience that with my dad on a 375 gross bull. I just don't know. I mean, in, in reality, score doesn't really matter but it does i mean we're all into elk we all love to kill big animals and so it's just that much more cool to kill an old weathered down rutted up worn out giant i mean it doesn't get any better mm-hmm. oh absolutely well and how important like finding those animals like you just have to be in country and in looking but it like your guys's um a, approach to finding those critters hiking in four miles every day to what I picture as the absolute master vantage point in there that just shows so many drainages and so many spots. But you had been looking there for days and hadn't turned up that bull. But just believing in that vantage point yes. and hiking to that vantage point instead of like hiking through that breaks country and down all the coolies and up and hoping to get lucky and bounce into one. You 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 kept to your guns and kept to your approach and kept getting to that master vantage point and then eventually there he is absolutely it always it always comes back to mental toughness when you kill a giant or even just make a kill it always comes back to to mental toughness and if you know if you know how to hunt an animal or if you know how to hunt a species believing in the process right and so if you can believe in what you're doing and with some experience, you can develop a kill plan or develop, you know, a program that you know is going to make you successful if you believe in it. I mean, it's just a matter of sticking with it. And like we've discussed, those brakes help. They move around so much. And if I truly believe you do the same thing every day or not every day necessarily, but if you go do the same thing for three or four weeks of the Montana general season, you're going to see new bulls every week. And, and it's it's a fact, especially out there. You see new bulls every week as they get pushed around and pressure from all different areas. And if you're if you find an area where the elk like to be, you can't beat it. You just that's why I believe you have to do the same thing over a course of weeks if you have the time. And you, I mean, you'll you never know what's gonna come up out of there because. I mean, you've hunted the breaks too. You can go a long ways and not find an elk in the breaks. I mean, even in some of the best units, it's definitely possible, and, and all that country looks the same. And so, yeah, once once you find where they like to be, stick to it. Yeah, um, believing in your game plan. I, I remember when I was hunting, and I, I started, I cut my teeth hunting elk, and with my bow, and then I'd hunt them during rifle. I was just into getting big, mature ones, like big, mature six points. That's how I started. And so... 
um, I had these couple buddies that really introduced me into glassing. And so, you know, I had binoculars and I had spotting scopes and I would look around. But these guys believed um, believed so much in their glass in getting to the master vantage points. And it, yes. it's been 15 years now, and, and I, I, I've taken that approach to my, my mule deer hunting and my elk hunting. But believing in it, it isn't just looking through your glass. It's finding those, those master vantage points that give you the best look at country and then hiking to those being those at the, being at those at the right time um so you're at the right place at the right time and it shows you what lives in there but believing in your glass and getting there yes. day after day is so key like i was just hunting um mule deer this past weekend and i found this vantage point but it's such a sweet vantage point it just lays out all these drainages that these muleys like but getting there it's amazing you can look over the deer and you can look for a little bit for half an hour or so you still don't see all the bucks like you have to sit on that vantage point for two three hours and they just keep appearing and they're rutting right now and so those bucks are moving through country and you pick up bucks that you didn't even know were there just by staying on the vantage point and believing in your vantage point and keep glassing you know but it's a it's amazing what shows up i think so many guys they pull up to a vantage point or maybe height to a vantage point you look around you don't see what you're looking for and they move on to the next one but believing in that thing and sitting there and looking and watching and turning up all those critters just like you had turned up that satellite bowl and, and then i would do the same thing i'd keep glassing around but i'd go back to that satellite bowl and see what's happening and same thing with those deer i'd go back to all the little groups of does that i had seen and there was no buck with them then but then all of a sudden i'll catch a four point moving through there and now i've got a buck i can go after or, you know maybe i'll I'll, I'll spot another one moving, but it's just amazing what those vantage points show you, but believing in it and, and believing in your, your theories and your approach, it's so important to being successful. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and the breaks are the epitome of that. There's so many nooks and crannies and a lot of those bulls, especially those big ones, they, they slip into the timber, you know, within the first 15 to 20 minutes of light. And yeah, we sat there for the whole first day. And we didn't see all of the elk until dark of that evening, like new bulls popped out, you know, the last hour of the first day that we didn't see in the morning. And so, yeah, you have to spend a day or two to really cover that country and be able to find everything that's in there because they can hide so well. And, and that's why those massive vantage points like you're describing with the, with your mule deer spot are so important look over as much country as possible and look it over for at least a day and a half. And it doesn't matter if you're hunting elk or mule deer in Western Wyoming or whatever. It, it takes a day and a half at least to find everything. Yeah. You have to know when to move, but you, you definitely don't want to move too quick or off a good vantage point too quick. And I remember this one pretty good bull I shot with my rifle. It's been 15, 20 years now, but there was seven bulls and they were working off this this deep dark timber and they'd work down the faces and they'd feed the faces and I caught them one day doing it and so I'd be up there in the dark and I'd try to catch them coming back in or up there in the dark you know up there before dark and I'd catch them coming down and I hunted these bulls for seven days straight and for seven days they crossed in the dark and some days I could even see them in the snow in the moonlight crossing up through there but they'd wow. cross in the dark back and forth every day they were just high pressure elk and they had this tight program but 
yep. eventually they made a mistake, and I was up there on the seventh day, and me and my dad both shot two really good bulls, two 320-plus bulls with our rifle in the same day. But it, the only reason we did is because I caught them with my glass, and then I stuck to my game plan. I knew they were crossing yep. back and forth. And seven days straight, finally on the seventh day, they made a mistake. But, um, yeah, you, you just got to – what you call it? Your hunting strategy and, and believing in it, and you just got to keep to it, and eventually it works out. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Just yeah. believing and believing in yourself and believing in the process. It's amazing. The it comes back to the, your mental game every time. Oh, it so does. Believing yeah. in the process. That's what you said. I like that saying. Yep. Yeah. Because yep. um, you do have a process. The way you hunt country, you know, and, and and once you can believe in it, you know, it's just a matter of time. Just putting in the days. But man, good for you. And you had a a great early season too. Um, you had a bunch of bow hunts. You went on. Um, gosh, I, I saw some good critters come across my feed. So tell me about your season. You started off, um, probably hunted antelope first. Well, no, I didn't, I didn't hunt antelope this year. I didn't draw anything. Um, it was a tough year in the draws for me. So I just had generals and, uh, that's it deer and elk. But, uh, I started off in Oregon and did a helicopter drop hunt and that was an August 25th opener. So I got out there early still. And that was, it was a fun hunt. It's early season, open country. And, you know, they, they're acting like deer and not bugling at all. And I shot that six point on opening day and it, it all was, it was great. It was fun. It's just, it was running and gunning in open country. Gotta wow. love it. Um, so, uh, helicoptered in, was that due to the remoteness of the country or due to the private public borders or how come you decided to helicopter in? Yeah, just, for better quality experience, you got some big chunks of public that are surrounded by private that are otherwise inaccessible to the public. And so, uh, yeah, just finding good hunting. And, and it was through an outfitter. Uh, we're doing a promotional thing for him. So it was through our outfitter buddy and, and colleague and friend. We've, you know, Ike and Guy have known him for years. And, and so it was a promotional thing for him. And so it's kind of his program and his, uh, routine that he did but it's he's got it figured out and uh yeah it's a nice little honey hole with some good elk hunting in in the middle of private it's you know a few thousand acres in the middle of just solid private so it's a good little spot man how cool that's thinking outside the box i have a spot in montana that i'm dying to charter a helicopter and i've called and got pricing on it you know coming from the bigger city that it's next to and it's just a block of blm that these elk yep. just refuge on um gosh one of these years uh, you know and it's not that expensive really it's not any more expensive than you know hiring a, a horse drop camp or um you know uh, even paying for some of these out-of-state tags that we get and hunts that we go on uh, it really isn't too much i'm just dying to try that out it has to be pretty fun riding in one of those things too huh oh yeah yeah the whole experience from you know sling loading gear in and riding in them and yeah, it's it's cool and like you said, surprisingly cheap. I couldn't believe how cheap we were getting uh, those rides and sling loads for per hour. I think it was like 150 bucks an hour or something, and it took us. Well, if you're close to a big city, it, it's not going to take you any more than an hour to go get dropped off. It's really not that money, and it depends on what bird you're using and how much fuel it uses, and that determines the price. But yeah, it's really not that expensive. Huh. Um. Early season elk, that's a tough endeavor, man. Uh, before they before they go into the rut, they just really aren't moved into rutting ground. Seems like they're up high in bachelor herds, like you said, hunting them like they're deer. 
Yep, yep, exactly. They're just rubbing off their velvet and not rutting yet at all. But they were still acting like deer. And luckily, it's open country, and so you get, you know, some some definite time of of looking them over and glassing them up and and watching them uh, go to bed. And yeah, it's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. If you like spot and stock hunting, it's it, you, you would really enjoy it. I know you would for sure. Man, I love open country hunting. It's just my favorite. If I can see him, I can kill him, or at least yeah. that's the way I feel. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. From coming from northwest Montana, I grew up in the Flat Valley, and I mean, it's all brush up there and closed off country. It's all tight and different tactics. And man, hunting open country is like a breath of fresh air. It's it's easy. <laughs> Comparative, <laughs> comparatively, it is. <laughs> It is. I take wide open sagebrush, and a lot of guys wonder how they're going to get close to the animal, but there's so many folds and rolls to the country. Yeah. I'll take them in wide open sagebrush and take my chances trying to get close. And don't get me wrong, I get stuck in open terrain, too, where I can't move any further. I can't get closer. There, There isn't enough, but there, there's usually, like, something you can work with. And I think, like... All that open country antelope really helps a guy. And then, yep. you know, like yep. I say, I'm so drawn to open country. So I hunt elk in the open country and deer. And so you you just kind of get used to it. And um, using your term, believe in the process and just believe that I can get close to those things. And and uh, it seems that I can make it happen if I can see them. Yeah, exactly. It forces you to really work the topography in that open stuff. And, yeah, I've heard the same thing, guys just can't figure out or like, I can't believe you're hunting in that wide open stuff. It's like, Oh man, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I have a hard time in the cover. Like I'm yeah. um, hunting, hunting these mule deer. Like even this past weekend, you'll see a buck and some good does and they just put away and you know, the exact patch of timber that they put away in, but trying to sneak up on them in that stuff, they just like catch you between the branches or they're, it just seems like they're tougher to kill if I can't keep an eye on them or know exactly where they are. If I have deer bedded in the open or feeding in the open, like I can keep track of their ears and their mannerisms and what they're paying attention to and where they're looking. But when they're bedded in that timber and I'm just sneaking into that timber, it just seems like they, they're way more apt to catch me moving in than they are in the open when I can keep track of them. Absolutely. That kind of just goes right into my mule deer hunt in uh, western Wyoming this year. That's exactly what I was struggling with. And I was hunting some new country and, and there's just so much timber. But these giant bucks live there because they're so hard to kill. And I, I found two bucks that were had over 28 inch frames, giant four by four and another giant three by four that I thought they were both over 190. But there's so much timber and they bed in that timber and they're out in the, in the open for such a short period in the morning, and the evening that man, it's so difficult to kill, kill them in that sort of situation because of that timber. And, and like you said, and you can go try to stalk in blind in, into the timber, but success rates just so painstakingly low in a situation like that, that I, I did it once. I actually almost killed one of those giants, but um, yeah, we were out of there the next day and ended up blowing them out. But yeah, it's frustrating hunting, man. It definitely is. Um, I would think like that Hawaii makes you better at hunting thick cover because so many of those axis deer are in thick cover and I like hunting them when I can catch them in the open, but those axis, it seems like it, it really improves like your still hunting game, like stalking through timber or thick brush where you don't know where the game's going to be and really taking your time trying to pick it apart with your binos. Like there's an art to that too, still yep. hunting that timber where you know a deer is or where you don't know where a deer is. 
Right, right. And I think the hardest part about that and with most people is the ability to slow down like into slug mode because that's exactly what you have to do. And and I even struggle with it. It's tough. It's the toughest type of hunting that you'll do, but you just have to slow down. That's man. It's right. And I don't know if you're better off. Like, I, I guess you in any scenario you run across, there's multiple different options that and, and there is no. You know, you can't put a well. I'm I'm 67 percent sure I'm going to kill this buck. Like you never know. It's like um, uh, there is no odds chart. You just have to make your decision based on your on your experience and and based on your instincts and 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 so you see a buck and like where I'm where I'm hunting now, I'll watch a buck go in the timber. And I don't know if I'm better off to try to get in that timber and still hunt him. Or if I should wait until he feeds out in the evening or feeds out in the afternoon or ruts a doe, like getting the striking distance and then watch him come back out. But like you said on those Wyoming giants, it wasn't feasible because how you know they're spending such short time in those feeding features. But it, it's always like the – I'm always trying to think in my brain what the right move is, you know, and I guess you know, <laughs> the right move is when you actually kill the deer and the wrong move is hindsight for every time that you mess it up. <laughs> exactly exactly and every situation's different well and, and to those animals that, that's what's hard yeah well and, and those animals are just gonna win a lot like if you're a bow hunter you're gonna fail like that it's a prerequisite to success is that you're, you're gonna have to fail over and over and sometimes i'll get it done on my first or second stock and i really feel like i'm making all the right moves but there's a lot of times where it'll take me four or five or six chances before I finally get it right. It's just you're going to fail. The animals are going to beat you. You just keep trying to learn from it and get better and try to make the right decisions. Absolutely. That's all you can do. And it's funny because you can think you have a perfect stock or a perfect setup and, you know, it all gets blown up and it's like, it's almost like the animal chooses you when it's time for him to be killed (laughs) because sometimes (laughs) you'll kill him when you least expect it or when you're, you know, making a stock that you think you have low odds, but you're trying it anyway. It's just funny the the nature of, of bow hunting and making kills like that. And I don't know, Murphy's law has some sort of role in there. I don't know exactly what it is, but he's always has a a role in if you kill one or not, (laughs) man, isn't that the truth? Like, um, it it is, it feels like it's meant to be when it finally comes together, but even the best scenario can fall apart right in front of your eyes. Like your, your coyote, you know, you can have a coyote that chases the deer. You can, I I had my biggest late season buck this year in Montana. I, I snuck up on him in his bed and had him at 50 yards bedded. I didn't think there was any way that I couldn't shoot that buck. I had a perfect wind kind of quartering, but away from him and down the hill and just waiting for him to stand. I was freezing. I was shivering because it was so cold and I had ditched my pack, but just waiting for him to stand to take my shot. And he stood up and he rubbed on the tree and I had like a quartering towards, but it was just too small of a window to tuck that arrow with the wind and waiting for a broadside and he beds back down. Well, then he gets up and he pins his ears back and goes for a different buck down in the bottom and just walks out of my life like I'm trying to get ranges and get drawn. And and then he's just gone just like that. And like you say, (laughs) the scenarios, they fall apart so easy or you bust a deer you didn't see or even the the best laid stock or the highest percentage stock. It can fall apart right before your eyes. And so you're right. You just try to play your odds and don't stalk recklessly and try to get in and make something happen. You never know when it's going to work out and when it isn't, but it does feel like it's meant to be when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter how perfect you move and how, you know, good of a setup. If it it is, it's like 
there's that level of luck that you need that you maybe you, you can't put a number on what level of luck you need, but you have to have some sort of luck for you to actually make a shot because of the situations that you're describing. Yeah. Um, I always try to get good karma in the hills. I'm always picking up garbage. I'm because luck it, it does play a role in it, you know. And so yeah, I'm yeah. always trying to do the right thing and do right by people and like just hoping it pays off for me. But and it, it's amazing. Like sometimes I'll find myself in season. Like I'll, I'll find an animal. And isn't that special when you find bucks like a, that, those nature that like the those 190 plus inch bucks or like the bull that your dad killed or you find one of those. I always say to myself, okay, I'd like to use my luck right now. <laughs> like this, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like if I, I'll save it up all year, but let this be my one lucky chance, you know. <laughs> but finding those animals is one thing, man. Killing them's a whole different thing, especially with the bow. I found a giant mule deer this year in the early season and made a good stock on them and a good play, and it just didn't come together for me. But it, it's a whole entire. It's it's another beast to, to, to then harvest that quality animal that you found. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the thing. It's just finding them. It seems like such an accomplishment, let alone getting an arrow into them. It's it's mind boggling how difficult it really is. But yeah, sometimes it's meant to be. It's meant to be. And if it's not, it's not. That's all you can tell yourself at the end of the day. Well, and, and try to be your best self and be ready for the opportunities and be yep. be doing everything on your part to seize that opportunity, looking for your window and then, yeah, hoping yep. your, your skills are up to par and try to keep calm and like uh, keep your shooting mantra like it. It, it is still difficult to execute on animals, you, to execute yep. a good shot on animals. I swear you're 20 yards worse than you are practicing in your backyard. If you feel like you can shoot 70 in your backyard, you better hold yourself to 50 out in the field. Like you're just worse. That adrenaline's going and that pin doesn't aim the same and just trying to keep your composure and then pay attention <laughs> to all those details. Man, it's still still difficult for me. As a, I'm sure it's difficult for you. You make a lot of good shots, but it just isn't a given. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, the, the idea with all the off season bow hunting and, you know, going to Hawaii or going to Australia or wherever, just to get the repetition of, of getting kills under your belt. That's, that's why I do it. That's exactly why I do it is because I want to be as ready as possible when it's the moment of truth and there's a super freaky, huge buck in front of me or a bull and it all comes down to this. It's got to be routine because there's so many other variables that are out of your control. It's got to be routine, and it's so difficult as it is. And so the more kills you get under the belt, the more bow hunting you do. You know, I, I see it as preparation for that one moment in your life that you have a 220-inch mule deer in front of you. Can you keep it together? I mean, that's why I do it. Oh man, that's why I do it too. It's um, <laughs> it's so challenging and something that you never quite master that you're always improving on. Like Twenty years of bow hunting, and still every season, like even this off season, I'm just thinking about all the ways I can improve and get better. Like just to be, you know, more prepared for for those situations in the backcountry where it comes. But I I just absolutely love it, man. It's just something that you never <laughs> master that you're always working on. I think that's why I enjoy it so much. Absolutely, and success is so difficult to come by and, and that's why it's it, it's so overwhelming or, or so appealing to me is that it's such hard earned success and there's no better feeling in the world when it comes together and, and maybe there's no worse feeling in the world when you do miss a giant and uh, that's that's why we love it 
Absolutely. Isn't that the truth? The highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I don't think you can have one without the other. I think that's why they, they come together, you know, because it will take yep. you to your lowest point and, and, and you know, uh, it'll also take you to your highest point when you are successful. So you arrowed that bowl in Oregon, which was a nice, a really nice six point. You were yep. muley hunting and um, I think you were elk and muley hunting together, right? When you found those couple bucks. Yeah, I, I was elk hunting. I, I, I love elk. I'd rather hunt elk. Do I dare say that? But I, I love hunting elk and it was an elk kind of scouting mission. And I figured there'd be some deer in there too. And so like any bow hunter, I'm an opportunist and, when I saw those giant deer, I was like, time to put elk on hold. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they weren't really bugling anyway, but yeah, I, I hunted those big bucks for like five days and until I ran out of food back there. And, and, uh, yeah, you just end up chasing your tail a little bit when you're hunting them in the timber like that. You need some sort of miracle to get a shot opportunity when you're hunting that timber. But, uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't pan out. And I, right after that hunt, I went down to Colorado. I drew a, an elk tag in Colorado and hunted down there for seven days. And I passed up three bulls down there, just raghorns and five points. And we ended up being like six miles in and I'm not going to pack a five point raghorn six miles out. And I, my kind of unspoken goal is six points only is what I like to kill. It's my own goal I set for myself. And so I like to kill six points and that's what I, I aim for and it, it didn't happen in Colorado but I don't know it, it was a tough hunt not a lot of elk and they're very uh scattered uh throughout the unit you go for a few miles and not not even see one elk and then you find a drainage and there's a whole bunch in there and we had one good day of rut activity and that was it so it was beautiful country high country uh you know hunting there at tree line and we, we did have one good day of rut activity and called in a few bulls and just just nothing great. But that's elk hunting, too. So, man, it is. Um, well, I uh, not that I'm glad to hear you be unsuccessful, but I'm just glad that we have similar experiences is that it's it's not every place I go that I kill a bull. And I have the same unspoken rule and law for myself. It's a mature yeah. six point or it's nothing like I won't you know, I, I've shot enough five points in my day and they're just really heavy and tough to pack out. And plus, I just want to be happy with my harvest when I get done. And to me, that's a mature six-point bull. Um, yeah. But yeah, similar experiences. Elk, they, they can just be tough. They can be so spread out throughout country. There's a lot of places they're not. And you got to find those concentrations of them. And it sounds like you guys got into them there for a day and had pretty good rut in action, um, but just tough to keep in elk every day. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the muzzleloader hunt is right before, and so they get pushed around, and they're already spooky. And and I, I did have a chance. I mean, it, it was – well, it wasn't a great chance, but I snuck in on this herd bull, and it was one of two six points that I saw. But it was freaking perfect. This thing was bugling at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I had some nice up thermals, and I snuck in on him, and he had about 13 or 14 cows. And me and my camera guy looped around in front of him, and he pushed a cow right up to us at 18 yards and he just stopped behind a tree and he stood there and he was just panting like a dog for, for two minutes. So get this, Brian, we're hunting at 11,200 feet, which isn't really that high, but it's high for anywhere out West if you're elk hunting. And you know, when you're supposed to draw, if you do it enough. And so this, this bull's pushing this cow up the hill and he pushes this cow past us and I draw my bow and this bull stops behind the tree and he's sitting there 
panting like a dog and I held my bow for a minute 45 total. But I, I had to let down. I do. I was about ready to black out. <laughs> I, I couldn't hold it anymore. And I don't know if I was fatigued or dehydrated, but like at a minute 30, maybe a minute 20 and, and 20 seconds is a long time when you're in the heat of the moment like that, but I'm getting dizzy. I, I, my eyes just started getting dizzy. I'm trying to take deep breaths there at full draw. And these cows are feeding closer. This cow within that minute and a half, she's 10 yards from me looking at me. So, I mean, it's over. You're either going to black out and fall over or you're going to let down and blow them all up. So, I mean, it, it's, it was the end of the deal and he just never stepped out into the shooting lane. And I had to let her down because I, I was about ready to black out. I don't know if I could hit <laughs> five more seconds, but I, 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 I fell down onto the ground and I had to like put my head between my legs and get the blood flowing again. I'm sitting there taking deep breaths at full draw and I'm like, I'm dizzy. I can't even focus and concentrate and look through my peep. It was the weirdest experience. Oh, those big bulls, they sure have a knack for making the right moves, even when they don't even know what's present. Oh man. Yeah. And, yeah, and that, Holding your draw, like, um, a minute 30 is so long. Like, if you yeah. were to describe that and didn't have it on video, you would have told me I held my bow for five minutes. That's what it feels <laughs> like. It feels like you're holding your bow forever. Like, I've even, with a wrist strap release, I've held my, grabbed the back of my neck with my hand and closed yep. my eyes and just try to hold it there for as long as you can. Because you're right, if you can hold your draw and that bull walks out, he's a dead bull. But the minute you have to let down, the whole scenario blows up. But there, there's yeah. nothing you can do there, man. You held it till you about blacked out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And at that point, it's like, I'm either going to kill this bull or I'm passing out. I don't care. But... It, it, I don't know. It was weird. Like you said, you're just pinching your shoulder blades and just trying to focus and concentrate and take some deep breaths. And I'm telling you, I, I mean, it was a minute 45. I, it was on video. And so I went and counted it and I practice holding my bow for two minutes, you know, at home, but it's totally different up there when you're hiking your butt off and you're fatigued. It's 11,200 feet. There's not a lot of oxygen up there. And, and after I let down, I don't know if I could have drew my bow back the rest of that day. That's how freaking burnt I was. I was just <laughs> holding it forever. And so, yeah, it was it was quite the experience. But at the end of the day, you just have to shake your head and laugh at it because that bull could have been dead just as easy. It's just how it goes. Man, yeah, you've got uh... – uh, you've got such a great mindset around it. That is what you have to do as a bow hunter. Like you want that opportunity. You've been working so hard for it, miles upon miles. You finally create it, and it's so close to happening, and it blows up. And the animals are just going to win sometimes, and you just got to chalk it up and laugh and go, "Well, I was close. At least that was thrilling." You know, I, uh, <laughs> worth the worth the price of admission is always what I say for the hike, the drive, the whole deal. Just to have a chance and get close in stock, like you have to just embrace it and laugh. That's all you can do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and being able to get in on a big herd bull like that with his cows and just slipping in on there. I mean, that's what you strive for when those cows are on estrus and just incredible elk vocalizations that you get to experience and they're 10 yards from you. And the day before we called in a five point into eight yards and, and called another raghorn into like 45. And so, yeah, I mean, it's worth it. Price of admission, like you said, I mean, it's worth it. That's all you can ask for. Sometimes you, you know, you kill them and sometimes you don't, that's bow hunting. Yeah. Well, and it, um, and and not that I, I I don't take any joy in in failure. I love hearing your successes, but I think 
our audience draws from it as well. It's just that, you know, we watch you and we follow your social media, and I just see all these big six points come across my feet and go, man, Dan is just <laughs> killing it. It's one after the next. Like, he, he has got a – he's just so proficient, so good, which you are. You're just a, a stellar bow hunter, absolute top of the heap, top 1%. But it's nice to hear these shortcomings and these downfalls and these, these periods where you don't harvest, where it doesn't come together because I have so many situations like that where I'm so close, I just need the bull to take a step, or I just need this to happen or that to happen, and it falls apart right in front of me. And I, you know, I've been bow hunting for so long, and I pride myself at, at being good at bow hunting, but I, I love to share these stories of when it doesn't come together for me because it, it, it makes it like we can relate to it so much because yep. it's like, oh man, I, I had this encounter like that, or I had a bull that did this, or a buck that I missed, or whatever the scenario, because I've got a ton of those every year, and, and circling back around, like, failure is just a prerequisite of bow hunting like persistence is, is what kills animals you just you, yeah, you fell yeah. short on that one but you just got to keep elk hunting and eventually you did harvest another six point bull yeah yeah that, that's exactly what it is it's all your mindset and, and keeping positive and because elk hunting does kick your butt and it, that that's all it is is persistence and i don't care if you're a new bow hunter or if you've bow hunted for 45 years you're still going to fail. You're still going to have unsuccessful hunts. And that's part of it. And that's kind of, you know, on TV, when we do our episodes and stuff, we only see, you know, the successful hunts. But I don't know. It's probably 60 to 80 percent success, which is good for me. But there's still plenty of hunts you don't kill something on or, or you just see small stuff and you, know, you don't shoot it. And that's just bow hunting. So, yeah, it's failure is a part of it. And once again, that's why it comes back to. When you you are successful, it's that much better, and that's the draw to bow hunting to me right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's just, so, um, yeah, it's it, it it isn't just you or it isn't just me when I think of, of bow hunting and it didn't come together or I messed up that situation. It happens to all of us. You, yeah. you just you get better and you get more proficient and you you get good at your trait and you you kind of your instincts kind of take over and you know kind of the right and wrong moves and. The, you know, a lot of the times I make the right moves, but there's every once in a while that you make the wrong move or you just think and, – and hindsight's always twenty twenty. And if you didn't kill the elk or you didn't kill the buck, there's always a different move you could have made. And so you walk away from it going, man, well, I should have just came from the left. My wind would have been right. I would have came over the rise. Like you can see it so clearly after it happens, you know, but that's only <laughs> yeah. because you failed. When you succeed, you go, man, I made the right moves. That was a perfect stock or a perfect scenario, but it's just part of bow hunting just live and learn and 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 you got to just keep putting forth the effort so that bull didn't work out but you yep. continued to elk hunt and you continued to go hard you continued to backpack in different areas try to find the rut fest try to find the party try to find another mature six create another stock and eventually yep. it's going to come together for you because again you believe in the process yep yep that's exactly it and it's my mentality when it comes to elk hunting i want to leave it all on the table i don't want to be sitting in january regretting my effort or, or, you know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. Nah, that's not, that's not how I think and how I work. It's go, go, go to the end. And I know I won't regret my effort. I don't care how hard I try. I'm not going to ever regret how hard I try that winter. But if I don't try hard enough, I know I'll regret it because I've been there, you know, 15 years ago when I started elk hunting. But yeah, I was able to come back to Wyoming and, and hunt general elk and, uh, yeah, you're really going to love this little quick story. I'll make it 
kind of fast, but a lot of my hunts this season came down to patience, which it always does. But I hunted a new area, found a lot of bulls, a lot of young bulls, called in some small bulls, finally found a nice solid six point, got into position. Uh, later that morning, I, I glassed him up uh, first thing in the morning and then spent the day getting up to him and kind of just got in position on the north face and played the wind. And I just kind of hung out that afternoon and he started bugling again and he pushed three cows down onto this finger ridge and it was an open face on this little finger ridge, a little open park on a south face surrounded by dark timber and aspens. And I was like, you know what? We got a good wind. They're in a good spot. I'm not going to say a peep to them. And so me and my camera guy, we just tiptoe down there like a couple tomcats and we get down to the base of the hill and we just move super slow. And there's some thick dug fur there on the side of the hill and in the bottom. And we glass up the cows up on the side of the hill and there's no bull. And so we sat there for 45 minutes and we watched those cows feed as they slowly fed up the mountain from left to right. And that bull never showed. We're like, what the heck? Where is this bull? And so all the thoughts go through your mind. Should I call? Should I move? Should I slip up closer? Should we back out? Do I cow call? Do I bugle? And we just stayed put and we still had some good daylight left. And 45 minutes into sitting there, we were within bow range to those cows. They kind of fed up the hill a little bit. And all of a sudden, he just rips out a bugle. He was 50 yards from us the whole time behind three or uh, three dug fir trees laying there. And so that was a good example of just patience and, once again, trusting the process, believing the, in the process that that bull is in here. He's got to be, not forcing anything. And sure enough, he bugled a couple times. His cows were feeding up the hill. He walked right through my shooting lane. I had 45 minutes to rehearse everything. And as he walked through the, the shooting lane, I, I was at full draw and gave him a little chirp on the cow call and shot him perfect. So just being being patient and believing he was there, there's no reason why he would have left. And we stayed quiet. You know, maybe if I was to bugle at him, he may have jumped up and come down to me, maybe. But I don't know. I, I just feel like that if I'm close to a bull in a situation and he doesn't know I'm there, I'm probably going to be quiet. And maybe that's just personal preference, but it worked for me in that instance. Yeah, that's my preference too. Yeah, we um, have this saying on the podcast that I think I have to trademark it or something, but patience kills the buck or patience kills the bull. Um, and and I say it and I, I preach it and hearing it from you, it, it just rings so true that the the more patience you are, that that's uh, how you kill those big bucks and big bulls. And I bet you I get a message a week of somebody that killed a big buck or a big bull that says, Hey, I like the podcast. Patience kills the buck. Like it's always a matter of patience, hunting. You have to be so patient. Like, and I have the opposite of what I did this year where I made a mistake where I was hunting a really nice, tall, heavy mule deer, you know, 170 inch plus and followed him over into this bowl. 
and he was with uh, there was uh, two does and a two point, and then he was with another doe. So three does and a two point, him five deer. And uh, so I, I I worked all the way around. I got the wind right. I came in. It's this open sagebrush hill. It's wide open in there. And I I got into place and I could see some of the deer feeding and perfect. And I I got into range. And then all of a sudden I have those two does and a two point, and they feed right by me, like right at forty yards right there. Just perfect. You know the buck's gonna be right behind him somewhere. And I I wait and I keep thinking. You know patience kills the buck. Just sit here and wait. And I keep waiting. And pretty soon my mind starts playing tricks on me. As as it will and as it probably did on your bull that you fought the urge to to make a cow call to make a bugle to go see if he was there so i fought the urge and i just waited for him but i didn't see anything i didn't see that buck that doe and it's wide open sagebrush i'm th- just thinking god that that buck he he must have got out of here he must have gone over the ridge and now he chased that doe over that ridge and pretty soon i've convinced myself that he's gone over the ridge these deer feed by me they feed way into the next timber patch i've waited in there for 15 20 minutes nothing so i think okay well got to make it to the next ridge and then i'll be able to spot that buck from there maybe relocate him and get another play and so I stand up and I take a couple steps and I glass the sagebrush around me. There's nothing around me, you know. And so I start taking off for that ridge and I took maybe three steps and that buck hops out of that sagebrush and he must have been bedded 35, 40 yards away from me the whole time, just bedded <laughs> tight in that sagebrush. And I, I, you know, if I would have had patience, I'm sure I would have killed that buck. I just, uh, you know, I let my mind and I, I let those thoughts of him going over the ridge control me and I didn't stay true to what I believed. I didn't believe the buck was still there. You almost always have to believe that buck is still there, that bull is still there, you know, and and that usually pays off. So I did the opposite this year, spooked that buck, never found him again, never got another play at him. But that was one of my stocks this year where I, I didn't show the, the right amount of patience and I didn't believe that buck was still there and it, it bit me in the hind end. Yep, yep. And I, that the same thing happened to me on my deer hunt too. It was a 200-inch buck in the timber and if I would have just waited for five more minutes – I realistically probably would have killed him because he was feeding up to the crest of the hill. And I essentially, I met, I ran into him at 30 yards. He was just on the other side of a giant clump of brush. And so, uh, you know, he heard us cause we were so close, but I watched him bound away and it was just because of the lack of patience. And I second guessed myself and I was like, ah, I'm just going to go 30 yards farther. And then I'm going to set right there. And, and it bit me in the butt. It cost me a, a mega giant. So, yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, man. <laughs> <laughs> it so does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Uh, last weekend, yeah, we had uh, like a rut fest in front of us, and uh, I, I was with my buddy Dan, and we sat there for 20 minutes waiting for something to happen. I had a buck at 70 yards, and he was with a bunch of does, and he was a good shooter. There was more in the bottom down there. And, and yeah, you sit there, and I told Dan, let's just keep patient, keep patient, and nothing happened. And pretty soon I told Dan, I was like, man, if we can just get 10, 15 more yards, I can shoot that buck right there. Like, let's get down, and we'll belly crawl. He had filled out the day before, and so he was ranging for me. And so I said, let's get down, let's belly crawl. And we actually, it was a hillside, so we put our feet first and then slid on our backs, and we're sliding down to that buck. And, and we just get to about where we're getting ready to pop up and shoot. I can see a sagebrush that I'm trying to sneak in front of me. And there's a giant 
170-inch deer that walked right up to five yards, and I point to it to Dan. He walks up to our feet, dang near at three yards, and stares at us. <laughs> if we just would have stayed still, I would have shot that buck at 20 yards. No problem, you know? And here he walks up and meets us right there. But, yeah, it's it's always a game of patience. And like you say, it's always hindsight when you bust them or it doesn't work out. I, we actually stayed late on our backs for quite a while and, and waited for him to spook off before we tried to get up and shoot, but it didn't pan out. But, yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, patience does kill the buck or the bull. Um, it's so cool when you get it right and, and you, you you show off those patience or you you practice those patience and it comes together for you because it really is the key. But, yeah, uh, failure is a prerequisite. You're going to fail a lot before you get it right. Yep, yep, yeah. absolutely, and all you can do is keep trying. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, so you finished up, killed that nice bull in Wyoming. It was a nice six point. And then you've been all over since then. What other hunts have you been on? Yeah, a lot of filming. A friend drew a, a non-resident drew a, a tag for the wilderness down here, and uh, her and her boyfriend came down, and and I took them in, and it was a really fun hunt. And she killed her first six point, so that was cool to be a part of that. And then. Uh, Hunter Mason, Brandon Mason's boy, he drew a, a good limited entry deer tag down here. And so I got to go video that and ex- experience that with him. And that was his first buck and, a, you know, a solid 170 type buck. And so that was pretty darn awesome. And then my dad's first bull uh, that we discussed earlier, that was right after that. So being able to, to film and be a part of all three of those firsts for those guys was was pretty special. And and you know, I tell people all the time, you know, people are like, oh, you got stuck running the camera or doing this. And it's like, man, I, I have just as much fun watching these guys, these first timers, especially shooting their first elk or their first buck and, you know, sharing that joy or that passion with them. That's just as awesome to me. And so uh, October was great. That's that's what I did all of October. And uh, yeah, it was one of the best, some of the best hunts I've ever been on was with those guys this fall. So uh, it, it was just a great fall, lots of success, some failure, which is how I like to keep it. <laughs> me too. But, it keeps uh, me hungry. Exactly. You got to <laughs> have some failure, but we, we did lay down some great animals this, this year and got to see some really cool stuff. And I shot a bear too, uh, earlier. I forgot about that, but I was hunting deer. So get this, this bear is cruising around at 10,000 feet and digging up pine nuts. These Clark's nutcrackers are cashing their pine nuts and this bear is just up there digging them up and so this thing's you know running all over the place smelling and running back and forth moving digging and it, it ran right into me and my camera guy i was like i i hate to mess with a bear when i'm when i'm deer hunting in september for crying out loud but this sucker came up and he he didn't really want to leave and so yeah i shot him i shot him with that new uh it's called the nightfall extreme from from uh blood sport and it's a big hybrid expandable. And so I tested that thing out on him and shot him at 40 yards. And he went like 20 yards and lost about a gallon of blood in between there. And so that was kind of a, a fun little deal too. It's always fun to get a rep under your belt in the middle of the season on a, an off species animal, but uh, it was, it's fun testing those big broadheads out too. Okay. So that, um, I don't think I've seen that one. So it's a, a night force extreme. What's the cutting diameter on it? Do you remember? Yeah, it's a, the nightfall extreme. Uh, I, th- I think it's something like a inch and a quarter fixed and two inch uh, expandable. 
Oh, wow. And so it's just massive. I wouldn't shoot it at an elk or maybe probably not even a deer, but you know, a, a thin, you know, bears don't have thick ribs at all. It's something like that. I was like, yeah, this is perfect for a bear. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, I haven't shot anything with it. And so it was good to test it out on that thing, which brings me to my next point. So I did a, an autopsy basically on that bear and then on my bulls this year. And I think me and you should get together and do a video on shot placement on big game and how to work angles and what's, you know, what's a good shot is, is a quarter in towards shot good, et cetera, et cetera, but some dialogue and, and stuff. And I think it would help guys out a lot. I get a lot of questions and, you know, post some kill shots on Instagram and guys are thinking you're gut shooting something, but you're shooting a hard quarter in away animal and, and you X-ring them. And so I did a lot of that this year too, with just anatomy, uh, videoing the path of the arrow and what kind of organs are where doing like complete autopsies on, on these animals. So definitely have some exciting things coming down the pike, man. Yeah. Um, how cool. It's so important, isn't it, Dan? Like as you fall in love with bow hunting, you, you start, you, you really have to pay attention to all those angles. Like, um, bad things can really happen, you know, with a bow or with a rifle, like it, you have to make your best shot when you get a chance at an animal and you really have to have the best angle at it. And, and you don't want things to go wrong. And so even that deer that I had a slightly quartering towards, it wasn't a big enough window for me to stick that arrow where I wanted to stick it. But but you're right that that quartering away is such a great shot aiming for that offside shoulder. But yep. but you do like you have to be so careful and, and elk are so tough. They're a prime example. And I, I hear guys wondering that, too. Like, you just got to be really careful. You don't want to catch one lung on an elk. Like, right. you, you have to catch both lungs. You know, he'll die with a one-lung shot, but they can go forever. They can go miles with a one-lung shot, and they can go miles with a gut shot. Their shoulders are so thick, I have a hard time getting through them. Like, it really has to be a precise shot to kill them. But I, I think that'll be super interesting, Dan, because it it is such a game of angles and anatomy of how those vitals sit in there. And it'll surprise you high or low or a little yep. back or, you know, a, a little quartering towards what that arrow will do. And and sometimes I notice, too, that when I shoot at animals, they they tend to turn right as the arrow hits them or right before the arrow hits them. And so yep. my angle is different when I get up to that animal than what I was shooting at sometimes, you know. But uh, it, it's so important in bow hunting to take the right angle. And you don't you don't have that shock that a bullet has. And so, you know, you need them to bleed to death. And therefore, you need you need vitals. You need lungs, heart, or liver, you know, to kill them or get really lucky. But on a bad shot, I mean – you know, I, I, I've seen it before and it, it you know, a, a bad shot, I would say like one out of 10 you get, you know, or, or, yep. you know, maybe it's one out of five or something that, you know, you see somebody hit a femoral artery or, or they get enough blood loss or you sick them up enough, you know, shots in, you know, low in the brisket will make them pretty sick and things. But, um, you know, really, if you don't make that, that shot, you know, lungs, heart or liver, the vitals, you don't have a good chance of getting that animal. They're just so tough and can go so far. Yep, exactly. And and so you, you put that on top of getting close to animal, making the right moves, actually getting a shot at them, getting a shot at an animal and killing it are two different things. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so important. It might be the most important aspect of, of the harvest is making a good shot and know how an animal is going to duck and being able to anticipate that. And where is a good shot? And 
and that's yeah I, I just think we need to talk about it and it'll it'll go over well and a lot of guys wonder that too i mean especially frontals do you shoot an elk frontal you, I, I hear all sorts of stuff these days and it blows my mind but i mean do you i mean are there good situations to shoot an elk frontal you know, I think you can definitely kill him frontal, but it's just such a small window to hit. And this is just my personal preference and belief. So this isn't like a hard rule or a hard law or anything. Yep, like yep. I'm just having the conversation with you authentically as we bring it up. But for me, um, a frontal shot will definitely kill an animal. It runs – angles are good in archery, and you can get in the front of that chest and run the length of him. He won't go far. But for me, it's such a small window to hit that, that if I don't have him super close, like inside 20 yards – I don't feel comfortable with it, and and I think the reason is is because I've lost an elk shooting him in the front before, you know, and so yep. I've gone through I've gone through that heartache where I just like no, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm gonna wait for the right angle, but it it is lethal to shoot him in the front, and you make that good shot, and I have shot deer and antelope there, and I, you know, I I can't remember an elk right now that I've shot the, right in that front, you know, but they they die when you get a good shot but i just think it's closer your margin for error is smaller the spot you have to hit is smaller so it's not like a broadside shot it's a smaller spot in there and you miss a little left and a little right or a little right and bad things can happen and so for me like i i will shoot that shot if he's 20 yards or less and i know i can hit that exact spot and it's also an angle deal like you say quartering yep. towards, like how quartering towards, you know, like there's a quartering towards <laughs> that you should not take that shot because that shoulder's in the way. You can't get into the vitals where you need to get it, you know. Um, yep. Yep. It, no, that that's exactly it. That's what we need to discuss. And I agree with you 100 percent on your mentality with frontals. But I mean, this is the type of questions that we see all the time. And it's definitely let's bust out some examples and, and talk about it. I think we could put together something great. What what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I'm I'm right with you. Uh, Twenty yards and under, uh, the right situation, uh, straight on to me. I mean, if they're quartered at all, your window's pretty much gone. So they got to be straight on and and twenty yards and under. And I think I've killed one elk frontal, and it was eight yards. So I I don't do it very often, and I don't feel comfortable personally doing it uh, past twenty. Uh, me neither. But, yeah, it's just it's too too risky for me, and and so that's just my personal uh, opinion. But I know guys kill all sorts of animals past you know thirty, forty yards, even frontal. So yeah, I mean it's everybody has their mentality and their mindset. That's for sure. Yeah, well, and yeah, I just don't. It, as good of a shot as I as I, you know, not that I'm a great shot, but as proficient as I am with my bow, I just if I see a deer that's looking straight at me at 40 yards, I just won't take. It's just too small of a window to hit. You know, yeah. it, it's just any left or right, and you're in a bad situation. And so I just wait. And even that, I think that's what you learn over time when you're bow hunting. Like you just learn the angles to take. And patience kills the buck also applies to the shot. And those deer sometimes if they're just slightly quartering towards like i'll just wait i just wait to get a better angle because you know my mentality is is if i'm gonna shoot at him i'm gonna kill him you know i'm i'm gonna either yeah, make the shot yeah. or i'm not gonna take the shot and i'm definitely not gonna wound anything out there or gonna do you know my best not to take any of those marginal shots that is gonna end up in a wounded animal so yeah i just i wait for those angles and i wait for the right angle and that quartering towards is a horrible angle you really want them broadside or quartered away yeah yeah and that's 
once again, it kind of all ties back into my season and, and both bulls I shot in that bear were either broadside or slightly cordoned away. And all three of those elk died within eyesight or two of those elk and, and the bear, they all died within eyesight because of that angle. So it all comes back to that making confident shots or comp shots that you're confident in because you know, they work and not, you know, not throwing up a prayer, you know, you never want to do that and throw up a prayer and, and just fling one. You got to shoot like, you know, like I'm going to kill that sucker right there and you'll be fine. <laughs> Shot placement is just so important though, isn't it? So yep, I think yep. that'll be a really good piece. Well, man, you, you had to put together just some epic footage this year with your, your dad's hunt and all your hunting. You got to be sitting on a pile of footage. You're excited to get out for beyond yep. the grid. Yep. Yep. Dad's bull, uh, there in the breaks will be beyond the grid and, you know, some of these TV shows with some elk hunts and stuff. And, um, yeah, so much good footage this year, a lot of good elk rut activity. The bugling was a little less this year, I would say. I know there's some localized action that guys were getting into, but all in all, I didn't see as good of, of bugling action this year, but you got a couple days of it, and we had some really close encounters and called in some bulls, a few bulls within 10 yards with just a cow call. So yeah, anyway, lots of good footage this year. Lots of big animals hit the dirt, and it was another uh, tough but uh, successful year for sure. Yeah, well, I I can't wait to see your your episodes come out. I get so much motivation from your episodes. You're just a you're a bow hunter through and through, you know. And so uh, I I relate to you a lot. And then you're so good at the videography, the the capturing it, and your field producing. You know, I sent you a message when I saw your Wyoming mule deer hunt. I was just so impressed at the the episode that you put together on the Eastman's Hunting TV, your Wyoming mule deer. I love watching your elk stuff. I love I love sharing in your success and can relate to it so much so i can't wait to see what you put together this year yeah no i i really appreciate it that's why i always enjoy talking to you because we're we're definitely on the same page with that and the passion is high and the drive is high and it's what we love to do so i appreciate you just as much and your successes and your chats with you and i like always appreciate all your content on social media as well yeah, well, right on, man. Congratulations on your season. Thanks again for taking the time. Um, yeah, I I swear I could fill up my whole podcast with just talking to you. Like you say, it, <laughs> yeah. it's so fun to compare mindsets, and it's so funny. Like we hang out here and there. We haven't shared a hunt together, but we're so similar. Like everything you, you talk about, it, it speaks to me. You know, Just because I'm a bow hunter and I've learned the same hard lessons that you have, that uh, we have such similar approaches, it feels like. But I just relate to you so well. And you, you, you're so introspective the way you, you analyze your hunting and, and your approach to it. So, man, I really enjoy it. But thanks again, Dan. Um, we got to do it again soon and, and uh, catch up here in person. Sounds good, man. Looking forward to it. It's a pleasure as always. All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Yep, thank you. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Uh, again, just a great conversation with Dan. He's such a great guest. I get so fired up after talking to him. I, I'm just ready to go bow hunt and, and ready to keep improving my craft. But, uh, yeah, uh, Dan's he's such a intelligent and, and um, he's so great at sharing his ideas and theories on things. And you can see I uh, – I picked up another saying that I really like, uh, believing in the process. I I maybe said it too many times in the podcast, but I uh, I really liked 
you know, it, it, it just ties to so much of what we believe in and what we do as, as bow hunters and as Western hunters. And, and, um, so I really like that saying, so I definitely going to incorporate that in my lingo, but not use it too much. But I, um, I kept coming back to it in the podcast. I was just so drawn to it, but, uh, again, thanks to Dan for, for being on and sharing so much great information. Um, Hey, that that guy's just a savage in the mountains. He's so driven and goes so hard, and and uh, and and that's why he finds consistent success. As as um you know, he just made a decision as a young man that he was going to be consistently successful and commit to his bow, and and he did that and is doing that. And I know he's going to come up with some more great critters as he he's already got a bunch of great harvest bulls and bucks and and animals that we all dream about, you know, Dan's out doing it and chasing them and, and harvesting them. So, uh, I really learn a lot from Dan. Just love our conversation. So, uh, thanks to him again for being on sponsor for today's show is Sitka. Um, again, I just believe in Sitka wholeheartedly. I just absolutely love their gear. Just the best technical hunting clothing out there. They, they just got a, a system for, for all temperatures, all weather, whether it's, you know, wet, like, uh, go out to the Olympic Peninsula steelhead fishing. I'm always wearing my Sitka gear out there. Uh, whether it's, it's warm weather, like early season antelope or these early high country mule deer, like I had in Nevada and Colorado this year. Um, or, or all the way late, like, uh, late season muleys and everything in between. They just have, um, the right gear and the right system for you. So if you're in the market for any new gear this year, make sure to check out Sitka and and thanks a bunch to those guys for sponsoring and believing in the podcast. I really appreciate the support. Yeah. And with that, um, see over there at Eastman's, uh, gosh, it's just been a great hunting season. I've seen so many great critters come across my feed. So just excited to get back together with these guys. I talked about going to those shows. And so, yeah, I'll go to those shows with Ike and Guy. And of course, we'll try to record some really good podcasts with them and also get some other guests that are at the shows. And yeah, I just hope to, to meet some new people and, and, um, yeah, have some some more interesting conversations. So just excited to get together with those guys, Brandon Mason, Scott Reekers, the whole crew, Dan Picard. I'm um, not sure which shows he's going to, but yeah, just excited to get together with those guys and and uh, hang out and hear about their hunting seasons and then plans for the future. So um, excited about that. I uh, just got a cutback of. Um, uh, the Alaska hunt this this year that Alaska and Hall Road hunt I did um, for caribou up there um, it was a really cool hunt we captured a, a lot of great video and then uh, Brandon Mason did the adventure hunt up there in Alaska you probably or you might have heard the podcast that we did about that and so they kind of paired the two together so I mean it is just a, a high ri- highlight role of a film about hunting Alaska no commercials that's where that beyond the grid that internet tv show is so great like you just don't have this the same you know platform of like outdoor tv where you have to break for a commercial and then come back from a commercial explain where you're at or what you're doing you can just tell the story in its entirety so I really liked it. And the cool thing is, is it's going to be out on the internet. All you guys can see it. I know I feel so bad when it's on the outdoor channel and we, um, you know, not everybody gets the outdoor channel and I just have no other way to share it. So uh, this will be my Beyond the Grid debut. Um, I'm on there again. Brandon Mason, we share his hunt, my hunt, but uh, the final cut was really good. Um, I really enjoyed it. I watched it last night in bed with my wife and 
Um, yeah, they just did a great job at editing everything together. It's just so tough to tell the story in its entirety, you know, everything that happens. You just have to kind of highlight things here and there, but um, did a great job of editing it together, and I'm I'm really proud of it and can't wait to share it to you guys. So um, we'll be on the lookout for that. I'll push it on my social media when, when it comes out. Um, I haven't heard a release date on it yet, but, um, yeah, just excited to, to release it to everybody. So, yeah, pumped for that, and I know um, – yeah, let's see what else is going on. Yeah, just trying to plan, um, trying to work on my craft, just trying to work on my shooting. I've, I've kind of turned a corner on my shooting. I'm I'm back off the trigger. I know, I know. I did a whole podcast about it, but I just can't, like, I I, I don't shoot as well as I, I shoot. Like, I like the anchor more with the handheld releases, and, and um, you know, I, I've just come down to it that I can't force any shots. To choose when it goes isn't my best execution, and when you're shooting at an animal, you have to make your absolute best execution. So I'm back to shooting back tension only, you know, not forcing any shots, sticking to my practice. I'm just shooting really good groups, and then, you know, when I'm shooting at critters, if I need a fast shot to go... It's just not going to happen for me. I either need the couple two, three seconds to hold still so I can execute a good shot or I'm I'm not going to shoot. And it's it's just the way it is for me. I, I can't slip back into to bad habits or not be shooting my very best. So um, any, anyways, just working on my shooting and, and uh, working on my fitness. I, I'm so busy with this house and things and the hunts I've been on. But, I mean, I'm running every single night, running in the dark, snowing. And uh, me and my dog Gunny, we just um, we're going for it. I just want to be in the absolute best shape I can. That last hunt I did in the deep snow in the mountains uh, wore me out, and it it just makes me realize how important being in good shape is and good fitness and how much it helps on a hunt. And so, um, yeah, I just uh, I, I'm not gonna rest on what I've accomplished before. I'm just gonna put in the hard work to have the absolute best hunting season I can in 2019. Everything in my control, I'm gonna do. And so. Uh, yeah, just working really hard at my craft to improve and and to get better and and um, so yeah, I'm really uh, enjoying the process to use the term one more time. Uh, but yeah, uh, embracing the the process and and uh, working hard and putting in the hard work and 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 then sharing that with you guys and my motivations and and I just can't wait for these next hunts coming up. I'm I'm uh, uh, gonna, trying to put together that Arizona hunt, uh, go down with my buddy Dan again. I, I really want to put down a nice coos down there, and I know they're small targets, longer shots, and so my my shooting just ha- I just have to be on my game down there. So uh, excited! We're trying to put that together for like late January after the ATA, and uh, so that should be a good hunt. And then um, I book my tickets um, to New Zealand for April. Uh, it's just unreal like this average working class guy like me can go on these amazing trips and so yeah i'm gonna go to new zealand and hunt tar and uh probably try to hunt some some free range red stag um uh and and see what else i can get into down there but um yeah i'm just super pumped just a beautiful island there and and uh it's a 20 hour flight from la which is crazy but um yeah i'm really excited gonna go down there for a couple weeks and uh, do some bow hunting. So I got that to look forward to. So yeah, just need to make sure I'm on my game, in good shape, uh, shooting 100 and have my head right and uh, motivated and keep working hard here. So 
All right, you guys, really appreciate the support. Thanks again to Dan for a great podcast. I got some really good ones coming up I'm excited to release to you guys. So keep on the lookout for those. And yeah, keep working hard towards your goals. There's no shortcuts. Um, uh, hard work, discipline, dedication, it all pays off in the end. And uh, that's what I'm going to make sure I'm doing for 2019. And uh, I know you guys are too. It's been really fun to share in your success. You guys have put down some great critters this year. Um so yeah, we'll just uh, we'll all keep working hard together and making each other better. So um, thanks guys, I appreciate it. Check in with you guys next week.